Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sari Ivry. Today, a look at the life and death of Jewish commerce in Berlin. Throughout this year, Berlin is marking the 80th anniversary of Hitler's rise to power. They're having a series of exhibits looking at the ways the Nazis destroyed the city's diversity, its Jewish institutions in particular. Not all of the installations are museums. One exhibit has been set up at the Chamber of Commerce. If you're wondering, well, why there, consider this. Berlin wasn't just a major hub of Jewish culture and intellectual life in the 1920s and 30s. It was also the center of Jewish business in Germany. The city of Berlin was home to some 50,000 Jewish-owned companies, which is to say half of all Jewish enterprises in the country. But aside from the familiar images of boycotts and shattered shop windows, most of us don't have any idea about the escalating campaign of violence and harassment that led to the demise of those businesses and ultimately to the demise of the whole idea of Berlin as a city of commerce. Now, thanks to the work of historian Christoph Kreutzmüller, we're getting a clear picture of that destruction. Kreutzmüller has spent most of the past decade doing research for a book called Final Sale, The End of Jewish-Owned Businesses in Nazi Berlin. Along with that book, the professor has also put together an online database of thousands of companies that used to exist in the city. Brian Zumhagen traveled to Berlin to speak with Kreutzmüller about this research that began in his very own neighborhood. Christoph Kreutzmüller is walking through the Weinbergs Park in the district of Mitte. He says it's his kid's favorite place to go sledding. Yeah, there was snow like a week ago, two weeks ago. It was full of children. Kurtzmuller says in the early years, after the wall fell, when he moved to this neighborhood in what used to be East Berlin, you could still see some evidence of the area's history. Facades pockmarked by bullets, gaps where houses had been hit by bombs, and lots of fading signs on building walls. Like shop inscriptions of, of uh, 80 years ago. Like saying, look, shoemaker, en détail, en gros. Kurtzmuller says those slogans, often in the French that was fashionable at the time, made him want to learn more about the old businesses in his neighborhood, which was once a hub of Jewish commerce. Unfortunately, he says, most of those signs have disappeared over the last two decades of renovation and gentrification. All the old, sometimes lovely old inscriptions are gone. They're gone, and the names, they're just under white or pink or whatever purple plaster now. Kreutzmuller decided that even if he couldn't save the signs, as a scholar of 20th century German history, he had a duty to find out everything he could about the Jewish businesses that used to exist all over Berlin. The professor says that after years of doing research, mounting exhibitions, writing a book, and assembling a database on those companies, he'll never be able to look at his town the same way again. If I go through the streets of Berlin, I could really see in my inner eye, get a glimpse to be more precise, of, of what the commercial structure was like. Which sometimes, if you walk with other people, makes them feel a bit irritated because I keep on saying, look, look, this corner was like that milk shop or that used to be this uh, tailor or something. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, if you've got that, the, the, the database loaded down, you, you can really do walks on your own through, say, Oranienburger Straße and really know, okay, number 62, tailor, number 64, Milkman number 69, department store, like, and, and really, yeah, get an idea yourself. 
Berlin used to be a mecca for department stores, most of them owned by Jews. So Kreuzmiller takes me to see one of the old temples of commerce. At the busy intersection of Torstrasse and Prenzlauer Allee, he points to a grand structure that now contains eight floors of exclusive condos, restaurants, and bars. The place is currently known as Soho House, but that's not what the professor calls it. Um, right now, we're facing a department store, Jonas and Co. And this department store was set up by um, a quite a successful merchant from who moved from Gdansk or Danzig to Berlin in the um, early uh, 20th century. His name was Hermann Golober. He opened his discount store on this corner in 1928, on the edge of a neighborhood where lots of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe lived at the time. It was a great location until it became a really bad location. The owner of the department store, as of 1931, faced a certain problem. And that problem is the cemetery on the other side, because on that very cemetery, Horst Wessel was buried. Horst Wessel was a young Nazi activist who also wrote the lyrics to the party's anthem, which was named for him. He was shot dead under mysterious circumstances in 1930. After that, the movement declared him a martyr, and they started holding regular rallies at his gravesite right across the street from Jonas and Company. So you had lots of Nazis walking across this department store, which they identified as Jewish. So you had first wild boycotts. Uh, even in 1931-32. It finally got to be too much for owner Hermann Golober, so he moved his store just down the road to Alexanderplatz, which was also a great location, until no place in the entire city was safe for a Jewish-owned store. After they came to power in early 1933, the Nazis launched their so-called boycott of Jewish businesses, a campaign of harassment and violence that went on for years. Hermann Golober ended up fleeing to the U.S. after he lost his business and his original department store building, which was later used as headquarters for the Hitler Youth. The attacks on department stores attracted the attention of the many foreign reporters who were based in Berlin in the 30s, so they've been relatively well documented. Christoph Kreutzmüller says one of his goals was to find out more about the experience of mid-size and small businesses, everything from photography studios and carpet shops to the many food wholesale companies run by Jews, like a butter distributor that was located in a block of warehouses connected by a series of courtyards. All right, where are we now? We are in... Uh in the district of Mitte still, on Brunnenstrasse, and uh, in a house which used to be the largest butter trader of Berlin. These courtyards are quiet now, but they used to be full of activity, with trucks coming and going all the time. At the beginning of the 30s, the Weinberger brothers distributed half of Berlin's butter. The four men were able to stay in business for the first two years of Hitler's regime because they had international connections. The company was supplied and financed in part by the British-Dutch Unilever Group. But when that foreign conglomerate pulled out in 1935, the Nazis saw their opportunity and launched their attack. First, they denounced the butter company in a local party newspaper. Then, Kreutzmüller says, the German labor front, the Nazis' answer to the trade unions, started placing thugs outside the business. Telling the employees, uh, as good Germans, you shouldn't work here, actually some barring them from entering the compounds. The following year, police arrested the Weinbergers and kept them in custody for months. Christoph Kreutzmüller says when the brothers got out, they found that their company had been plundered. Most of what made the business, lorries, machines, was basically gone. And the employees were gone. So they had really nothing to return to uh, and then had, were forced to liquidate what was left, selling the house we're in now, and uh, emigrating then to the United States. 
While Jewish businesses like the Weinberger brothers were forced into liquidation, many others were quote-unquote Aryanized, that is, handed over to non-Jews. That process was managed by Berlin's Chamber of Commerce. Their former headquarters was our next stop. How did they find people to so quickly be in a position to take over some of these businesses? Was that difficult for the officials of the Chamber of Commerce? No, there was a huge queue of volunteers trying to, to take over. Uh, and the takeover then itself was kind of negotiated between the party. They would check, is a person politically correct? <laughs> and the, the Chamber of Commerce would, would check whether he had any knowledge. Because, like, of course, you had so many party officials like hoodlum, beer-drinking uh, as a man who wanted to take over this or that textile company, or, and they didn't have a clue. And you can actually see that a lot of those companies were then checked by the IAK, who grumblingly said, like, okay, he'll do, but then went into liquidation in 39-40 anyway, because the people, they could only drink beer and, and do violence and couldn't do serious business. During his research in the archive of the Chamber of Commerce, Kreutzmüller says he was struck by a letter he found. It was written by Leah Frankel, a widow who'd been running the family store since her husband's death in 1935. She'd actually managed to increase profits, even under the Nazis, but the harassment kept getting worse and worse. Just a few months before the three-day pogrom that the Nazis called Kristallnacht, Frankel took the bold step of lodging a complaint. She was, of course, a paying member of the Chamber of Commerce. And she complained in May 1938 that the Chamber of Commerce was trying to liquidate her company out of the commercial register, even though she still paid fees. But you could see how much courage that that widow, elderly lady had, saying, look, you know, this is against, you know, any idea of fairness. I'm paying you to destroy me. This can't, this can't be true, can it? Leah Frankel was able to hold on to her business longer than most until 1941, when she was deported and murdered. Christoph Kreutzmüller's book is dedicated to her memory. For those Jewish business owners who managed to get out of Germany and survive the war, compensation in the post-war period was slow or non-existent. Take, for example, the case of the original Jonas and Company department store. That building ended up in the Soviet sector of occupied Berlin. After East Germany became a separate country, the building was used to house the official state archive, known as the Institute for Marxism-Leninism. And in keeping with that ideology, East Berlin did not return properties or pay compensation to capitalists who'd lost their businesses under the Nazis. The heirs of former Jonas and Company owner Hermann Golober wouldn't get the property restored to them until the mid-90s, after German reunification. About 10,000 similar cases in the former East still haven't been resolved. Christoph Kreutzmüller says the Cold War division of Germany was an important reason why almost no surviving Jewish business owners came back to Berlin, the way many did in another major commercial center, Frankfurt. Berlin, after the war, was a, an island in, in communist Europe. And it, there was a, the blockade of Berlin, so, so it lost, basically lost its business function it used to have. And, and, and you can still see, I mean, it's basically Berlin is deindustrialized. Kreutzmüller says the division of Berlin also explains why a study like his wasn't possible until now. He explains that until 1989, many of the Nazis' old files on the city's Jewish businesses were on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Half of it was in East Berlin, and the other half was in West Berlin. Uh, so, and, and, and then, of course, yeah, just imagine like war comes down, and you've got some part of an archive here, 
Not to mention Jerusalem, New York, Washington, and many other places. Kreutzmiller calls his study a puzzle from 60 archives, but he emphasizes that he didn't visit them all himself. You had other researchers that you worked with, right? Or was it all you going to all these places all over the no, world? No, I would have gone completely raving mad. Uh, um, and it's all in all, I had 10 people working for me. It took the research team seven years to go through all the material that would be featured in the book Final Sale. Historians around the world are beginning to take note of Kreutzmiller's groundbreaking microeconomic approach and his focus on the individual business owners and the details of the persecution they faced. Barricon Books is having Final Sale translated into English and is hoping to release it by the end of next year. Until then, anyone who's interested can browse the thousands of Jewish businesses in Christoph Kreutzmiller's database to learn more about what the city used to be like before all the destruction. For Vox Tablet, I'm Brian Zimhagen. Brian Zimhagen is a reporter based in New York City. Christoph Kritzmuller is a professor at Humboldt University in Berlin. His book is called Final Sale, The End of Jewish-Owned Businesses in Nazi Berlin. It's out in Germany. And if you want to check out his database of Jewish businesses, you can find a link to it on our website, tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you for listening. Please do join us again next time.